before we begin this episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast, we want to give a little public service announcement. Uh, late Sunday night, uh, Courtney Rowland, who is a reporter for Rivals.com, specifically working with Texas A&M, uh, is listed as missing in the Houston area. If you have any information or have seen her at all, please contact uh, Houston Police Department Missing Person Line at 832-394-1840. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Staten, Jeremy Paxton, and Hunter Atkins. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to 2018. This is episode 120 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Stat, and I'm joined alongside Hunter Atkins, Jeremy Paxson. Uh, guys, this is the uh, the first podcast that I think we've been together since, I don't know what, Thanksgiving. Uh, it's 2018 now. Uh, it's a great time to be alive. And Justin Timberlake is also making music. Surprisingly, actually. and with... Wait, we're starting this podcast about Justin Timberlake's <laughs> making music? <laughs> he, talked, he talked for literally it's an hour music. about Justin Timberlake prior to you coming over here. Like, that, that's fantastic. It was started to sweat and was like really kind of heavy. Yeah. Fake news. So Hunter, it's been a while. How have you been, man? I've been great. I appreciate uh, having me back as always. Sorry to our devoted podcast listeners that I have not graced you with my bloviating and loudmouth opinions. But I'm back. <laughs> Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with basketball? Yeah, I mean, well, first off, Jeremy, how have you been? Who's uh, Jeremy? Jeremy? Yeah, exactly. It's been, what, two weeks since we podcasted? Yeah, yeah. We, ha- well, we like did that. have the bonus episode. I'm looking at Jeremy. I still I, don't know who Jeremy is. <laughs> you know, I had... Um, actually talked into something that looked like a microphone uh, for a while and I, I drew on a picture of you uh, and just you know sat opposite and I, I had my own podcast but it didn't actually make it on the air so really what was it called uh, well the weekly brew with just me and a paper cut out of you so interesting yeah I, right. I, that's how much I missed it. A little, a little creeped out right now, but that's totally cool. Don't let my it's intent, a new year. It's a new year. Don't let that's my fine. intent stare. Did it cut into Rush Limbaugh's base at all? <laughs> you know that's <laughs> We share a portion of his audience. Okay, it's yeah, a Venn diagram. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Exactly. Totally, totally. So, all right, Hunter, uh, you've been covering the Rockets the last few weeks. Uh, James Harden out, hamstring injury. Uh, what? It's it, he's going to be reevaluated again, January fifteenth. Rockets have lost seven of nine. They they look good for most part of the game against Golden State uh, last week, but then of course in the fourth quarter, Golden State pulled through. Didn't have Durant. Didn't have Harden. What's going on with the Rockets right now? Does, does it even Defense. matter? Yeah, yeah, of course it matters. Defense is the is the the enormous issue with this team right now. So during their fourteen game winning streak, when they reached their apex, when you know the, the the bloviating pundits like ourselves out there were thinking that they actually might have a puncher's chance of beating the Warriors in the playoffs if it came to it, who who thought that they could win the West with this team? At that time, their defense was extraordinary. Right, um, they were letting they, they were allowing a bit more than 100 points per 100 possessions. And if, if anybody doesn't know out there, like that's a really good rate. That's a very low rate, allowing basically about 100 points a game. And they were ranked in the top seven in defenses. Since then, when the winning streak ended on December 20th for the loss to the Lakers, they have plummeted to near the bottom of the league in defense, and it's been a total free freefall. You mentioned they've lost six of eight. Well, it's just their defense is atrocious. They're missing assignments. They're not switching correctly. They're switching too late. Um, and this is something that is separate from Harden. Now, Harden would be very relevant in, if they, you know, it, he's relevant in the sense that presumably they could outscore teams more. Right. But the bigger issue is that their defense has eroded the last eight games. How much of that was Capella being out and missing time for four to five games? Not, I mean, that's, no, that's not a big deal because he, he played last night right. and he lost. And he played... He gave up, what, 57 in the first half? To the Pistons? Right. Something like that? I mean... The Pistons, you know, they had several guys out that were taking time yeah, off. Yeah. It, it's just... No, the Rockets are playing like garbage. Right. And it hurts them a little bit that Capella missed some time. But no, it's that as a unit, I don't know what's going on. They're, 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 they're fractured. A lot of the players, and, and in particular, the, the Houston Rockets beat reporter for the Houston Chronicle, Jonathan Fagan, has pointed out now clearer than ever, that Luke Mbamute, who they acquired this offseason, right. is the best on-ball defender they have. And missing him really has sent reverberations through every lineup they put out there. They used to have this killer lineup that they'd bring off the bench where you'd have Trevor Ariza, Luke Mbamute, and P.J. Tucker. 
who they also acquired this offseason. Those three guys on the floor at the same time provided the best defense, probably in the history of the franchise. An incredible trio of, of, of defenders who are flexible enough to guard the point guard through center positions of the other team. Kevin Durant, I talked to him about that lineup in specific, specifically this week, and Durant said it catches you off guard. Like That's a good lineup. And if he's going to compliment that lineup, you know. I don't, I don't think there's any better compliment that they could receive. So you lose Luke, and now not only do you not have this you know, secret weapon, so to speak, in terms of a defensive lineup, but you also are forced to play these bench guys that stink at defense. Right. You know, they had to go sign Gerald Green, who's been incredible He's fun to watch offensively, but defensively he's not bringing a lot to the table. To quote uh, Mike D'Antoni directly, he said, he's not the greatest defender <laughs> in the NBA. I mean, he was literally pulled off of his couch. He was sitting in Boston, yeah, got a phone playing call. Playing pickup games. But at the same time, you've got to give Daryl Morey a lot of credit. I for... do. It's no, it's a great bit of scoring, but that's not the problem they have right now. Right. They're not playing Okay. That, that's not how Again. they that's not how they contend in the West. They're let they're allowing 13 more points per 100 possessions, so basically a game. 13 more points per game in this eight-game stretch than I'm sorry, nine, excuse me, they lost seven of nine. That's what it is. They've lost seven of nine. They're allowing 13 more points per game in this stretch than they had up until, like, through the winning streak. So that's a humongous difference, 13 points a game. Yeah. Um, so Harden is a little bit of a red herring, you know, to blame all this on losing your superstar. No, they, they have real, like, structural problems. Every game now, P.J. Tucker very candidly, awesomely is saying, you know, our communication stinks. It's killing us. Chris Paul saying the same thing. Mike D'Antoni saying the same thing. Communicating. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of a synonym for chemistry, that their defensive chemistry is really off. Um, and that, that's the thing that if they're going to be, if they're going to play Golden State in the Western Finals, which I think we all expect they will, dude, they, they have to have a top defense as they did before. And if they're going to have a miracle chance at somehow beating the Warriors, they certainly have to have a very good defense. So I'm going to ask you about the Warriors here in just a second. But uh, Jeremy, as you can tell, is being quite silent when it comes to basketball talk. Who's this Jeremy? Is, this is nothing new. Uh, uh, but also, I want to plug somebody that we are going to have on the show in a few minutes. And that's David Graham from the Atlantic Monthly. I forgot to plug this at the top of the show. But we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Trump administration, what's gone on so far in the first week of 2018. It's been kind of uh, chaos up in the, the DMV. But uh, David Graham's going to join us here in just a few moments. And Jeremy, we'll get back to you unless you want to interject yourself. No, no, it's okay. I, I've, I've just been reading this great book I picked up in the fiction section, Fire and Fury or something ah, like funny. that. Yeah, funny. yeah just, it's, funny. Kinda, it's, it's but, really interesting. But Hunter, I, I do want to get back because, uh, you know, the Rockets, they did go through that remarkable stretch to start the year. I mean, they pretty much didn't lose from October to December. I mean, it was it was so much fun to watch. You know, they were clicking on all cylinders. They were doing it on both ends of the floor. Without Chris Paul for a period of time. Right, but, but toward... Uh, Toward the last two or three games of that winning streak, the Rockets had to come from behind by double-digit deficits. And it seemed like D'Antoni was saying, you know, it, it's good that we have a team that can click in, like, the fourth quarter and overcome, like, a 14-point deficit. But you could start as, sort of start to see the team become complacent at that point. I mean, what what is it that the Rockets can do to overcome that complacency that I wouldn't that, call it complacency that that's a very sports person on TV pundit like hot takey thing they're not, com- they're not complacent they know what's at stake it's a gr- the entire roster with the exception of Trevor Ariza no one on that team has won a championship and Ariza won it nine seasons ago with the Lakers D'Antoni never even been in the finals so they're not complacent this is a team driven you know in their mind to win the NBA title. Um, Are there pieces out there that they need? No, no, no. It's not. Th- th- this isn't about adding. They'll get healthy again soon. They'll get Luke back. They'll get Harden back. Let- let's be really, I don't know, conservative and say that those players will, get, will come back in the next month, which is a lot longer than what either of them had been estimated to, to how much time they had, they had been estimated to miss. But whatever, you still have half the season left. Is my point. And I, I do want to ask about that because Harden has been a guy that played eighty-one games last year. Uh, the year before, he played eighty-two games plus the postseason. He, and, and in the last seen, four seasons, he had missed one game because of injury, and that's remarkable stretch. But at the same time, you see in the postseason that he 
isn't necessarily himself. We saw that against the Spurs that yeah, last game. Know, just everybody, like everybody's look, needling. Right, everybody's but it threading like he, that one game, the, the game right. seven. It but was bad, my, my, but, my, he was, but he also my greater, for that game six. Right. My greater point is that there was some concern that maybe it was because his legs were so tired because of his minutes playing so much. Do you think that at the end of the day that maybe this time off for him due to injury concerns could be beneficial long-term for the Rockets? Sure, maybe. Uh, Yeah, I mean, but uh, I guess. If you want to put a positive spin on it, sure. I think that's looking, I I don't know, it's looking really far ahead. Like Rest rest for Harden is not going to be the utmost the the most important issue for this team going to the playoffs. That's that's not it. It's it's simply I, I actually Kevin Durant. Say we're gone defending Kevin Durant. The Warriors. Yeah. yeah. Do yeah. they have the pieces to stop them? You know, and and or maybe even the Spurs, who they might meet again. It's I really do think that defense is going to be the storyline. Mike D'Antoni's teams always have scored. That's not an issue. And and you can count on Harden for between twenty and thirty five points every night. You know, he's at 20 points in every game this season, at least yeah. 20 points. Um, so it, it's just simply, you know, as a team, how well are they playing on both ends of the floor? That's, that's the biggest thing. And, and for, for the longest time, no one was talking about defense positively for a Mike D'Antoni team. Now that we've seen really long, excellent stretches of defense, it's the new standard. Houston fans got a, spoiled a little bit. No, 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 not spoiled. It's the new standard. That is the standard that this team has set for itself and for the rest of us watching. They can be a very good defensive team. They can be a top 10, a top 5 defensive team. They really can. It's going to be the most important thing. Like, no one should worry if their three-point shooting is going to fall. So, and the reason I say that is because during this bad stretch, these last nine games, their overall shooting percentage for for overall field goals and for three-point shooting percentage has dropped in each category, by more than 4%. Hmm. It's bad. It's a lot, actually. Um, so they're in a really bad shooting stretch. Is that related to the defense? I, I don't know, actually. I'm, I'm not sure. The defense is affected by it because when you score more, it gives your defense a chance to set up on the other end of the floor. And this basically hurts them in transition defense more when they're missing shots. But my grand point is they will shoot well. They will score a lot. It's fine. So just but, back off the ledge, basically. Which don't was over- the ledge? I would say Houston fans overreacting at this point. No, you can react, overreact to their defense. That's the most important part. Fair. Don't don't worry about the, the the health in the long term. These guys will be back. It's a pain in the butt for now that Luke is not there to add depth and to make for make for that killer lineup that Jonathan Fagan, the B writer for the Houston Chronicle, calls the Tuck Wagon. You know, but it's just it stinks that the team is incomplete and has to figure out a way to restore its defense without you know. Harden and, and Luke to, to add depth and the whole thing. Like that, that's the thing that stinks. But if you want to overreact about something, or if you might call it overreacting, I would not. Is that the defense is really bad. Like it's, the, it, it's so glaring. Every player talks about it. And I do not know enough about basketball to easily to say, oh, well, all they have to do is this. All these guys, they keep talking about, well, we got to pick our talk up. We got to talk more. We got to communicate more. Well, what the F does that mean? Like, right, how, right. What do you mean? You're not talking? What? All you're doing is talking. So, so this is some deeper. Hunter, communication is key to make yeah. every relationship successful. <laughs> exactly. Right. No, th- this is this is, this has to do with some kind of defensive chemistry. Um, you know, it's maybe that these lineups are so aren't quite so familiar with playing with each other, and you don't have somebody like Luka Mbute who can compensate for other defenders. Right. So it's it's the biggest issue. And and you mentioned the Warriors; they have surged of late. We forget that well, Steph Curry is playing at an MVP level right now. Exactly. I mean, I th- and without I th- Kevin Durant, right? And I think his numbers. I think if you look at him side by side to his MVP years, his numbers this year are actually better. Yeah. And so we hear all this yeah. talk about you know uh, James Harden being the MVP. I think this injury stretch might you know pull him out of that. But Steph Curry could all be right. the guy. And then looking forward to the week ahead, the Rockets' defense has been bad, but they will play another three teams this coming week that are not good on offense. They will play the Bulls, the Suns, the Trailblazers. This is a chance for them to restore their defense. If they do not, the three teams they play after that, when they may or may not have Harden back, are the Clippers, who play a fast-paced style of offense, the Wolves, who have been really hot lately, and the Warriors on January 20th, back in Houston. So... I mean, they're, they're, they are in trouble defensively. 
Yeah, I think the next six games are going to be absolutely fascinating. And Jeremy's sort of like waving his finger. He's like, okay, enough basketball talk. Let's move on to something else. I mean, Jeremy, anything to add with basketball or do you want to talk football? I think we have something football-wise going on right now and then also tomorrow. Am I, am I right? Yeah, so full transparency yeah. right now we are broadcasting or I guess recording during the uh, the Panthers-Saints game. And it looks like the uh, the Panthers are trailing 24-12 to 12 in the third quarter at the time that we are uh, recording. Uh, but uh, did you guys watch any of the, uh, the the playoff games on Saturday or the first game with uh, Jacksonville on Sunday? And, and did anything in the playoffs so far surprise you? Uh, Titans, huge surprise. Yeah, I mean, with that, what, like one point win? I mean, poor Chiefs. And also, poor Bills. I'd kind of, they'd sort of been a, a story that I was following this season. I mean, back in the playoffs. Yeah, and because if you look at the Bills, like, since forever, I mean, they just, really, what, since like the 90s? But I think it was, I think the last playoff game that they were in was the Music City Miracle game, if you remember That's that. right. That's right. And I think that was uh, 2000, 2001, somewhere along that timeline. But 17 years. Right. Bill's Mafia was back in action in Nashville, not Nashville, Jacksonville. Couldn't get the job done. Nope. Yeah. Jaguars. Fans waited two decades to see them score three points. <laughs> <laughs> Pathetic. But, uh, you know, I, I enjoy living in Buffalo. I yeah. can relate, actually. We've had cold temperatures here in Texas, and Buffalo, they have it year round. So flocks and misery, flocks begetting of people misery. Left Buffalo to come down to Florida for this game. And they saw nothing. I mean, that, that's, that's disappointing, heartbreaking. But at the end of the day, they had a playoff team. Houston uh, did not. But uh, you mentioned the Chiefs game. Yeah, was anyone else kind of happy to see the Chiefs lose? I mean, I, I don't, I don't, you <laughs> know, I don't know why. There's the just like this, there's this shade that Chiefs fans throw our way. I don't know. It just, it, maybe it's a, maybe it's just like a, a set of wait, coworkers wait, I've had. Yeah, I was gonna say, what shade has been? I don't know. Well, you know, they they, they, they were the Dallas Texans way back in the day, and there's just kind of this. I don't know, like Chiefs fans are just, I don't know, they're, they're irritating. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe it's just my personal interactions think, with them. I think it might be. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. But I just, I don't, I don't like to see them win. So I, I think the, the fascinating thing for me about the Chiefs, they started the year 5-0. and They closed the year 4-0. But there was that stretch in the middle of the season where they went 1-6. and And they, they blew a 21-3 lead at halftime. Like, that hasn't been done. There hasn't been a league or a lead blown that big by a home team since 1958 in the NFL postseason. That's insane. Warms I mean, my heart. And, and that's that's a team with Marcus Mariota, who is not a good quarterback. No. I mean, his first touchdown pass in his NFL career in the postseason was to himself. I mean, <laughs> that's how good he is. That that fair fair. If 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 you're keeping track at home, fantasy football wise, that's phenomenal. But in Quidditch, I think that's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but. It was really perplexing to me because Andy Reid, you know, they, they lose Travis Kelsey in the, uh, in the first half due to a, a concussion. And the offense just didn't do anything after that. I mean, they, they wouldn't run the ball. They have the NFL rushing leader, rushing champion on their team. They didn't run the ball. They didn't pound the rock. And Tennessee was able to use Derrick Henry, grind it out with that defense, came away with a win. I mean, it was stunning. The Chiefs were nine and a half point favorites. How about the... Uh the Rams game. Rams. I mean, again, number one offense in the NFL, getting shut down by the uh, defending NFC champs. Sad. <laughs> Pardon me. But that game, to me, was a little bit uh, crazy. And, you know, the Falcons this year haven't been the same team offense. Oh, my gosh. Matt Are Ryan. you kidding me? Matt Ryan was my fantasy quarterback. He's terrible. Yeah, there, were, there were like four <laughs> or five games where, you know. This is where Jeremy opens up. Like, when you talk about his fantasy football team, he just gets going. No, it's, it, it, was, it was truly upsetting. <laughs> like on a deep, deep emotional level. I, 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 got, I got screwed with my quarterback this year. But Matt Ryan, what, like top three fantasy quarterback heading into well, he, the season? He was the MVP least, last year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the guy was amazing. Uh, last year, of course, blew it to the Patriots. I'm glad we're whatever. offering so much yes. game coverage. Okay, I know. So, more about the real game and not your fantasy. No, the Falcons, Sorry, the I'm Falcons. just it, so so. Fantasy owners who are listening right now, <laughs> if you had Matt Ryan, you understand my pain. But I, I'm, I'm the greater a little, point is that the Falcons proved yesterday. That's right. That in the postseason, they don't need it. They can be restored. They can that's be restored. Right. Not only this, but in their last six games, they are restored. In their last six games, they faced five playoff teams. Right. And their defense has been averaging, I think, giving up 16.8 points per game. That's the recipe to success if you want to get back to the Super Bowl. Not only that, but they go to Philly this week to play Carson Wentz. Not Carson Wentz. Nick Foles, because Carson Wentz is out. So now all of a sudden, 
the team that was the number six seed in the uh, in, in the NFC is now a two and a half point favorite on the road in the divisional round. I mean, they could very well make it back to the. Who Super do you think? Who do you think would co- who's going to come out of the NFC now? Them Vikings? What do you think? I I mean, keep in mind we are recording as the same time that the Panthers and Saints are playing. Saints are up at the moment by uh, twenty four to twelve. I I like I like the Saints. I really do. To come out of the whole NFC. To come out of the NFC. Okay. And and the reason Who's why it, wait who get, who gets was it? yeah but home field home field would uh, go to let's say let's say let's say home, the Vikings like so okay so if if the Phillies Phillies if if Philadelphia loses this mm-hmm. week then home field were to hold would go Listen, to right Minnesota. Now, well, right now we're watching the Saints in a dome. That's why Breeze is probably playing so well. You think that Breeze is going to play that well if he has to play outside? Where would he play outside? What do you mean? Oh, oh, wow, I'm an idiot. I forgot the Vikings. Yeah, Minnesota you're right, a, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. And so I, I think the Saints defense has Great played, call. You're, yeah, yeah, I think the Saints defense has played well enough this season. They have two of the best running backs in the league, which I think opens things up a little bit more for Drew Brees. And I don't know that I trust Case Keenum in the playoffs. I mean, I, I, I don't. I think Somewhere he, people yeah, are yeah, turning I, off the I, 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 I wonder. I wonder yeah. why you don't, yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I think this is the last hurrah for Drew Brees. It's it's not known whether or not he's going to be back in, in in New Orleans next year because of his insane contract. But I don't know if I'm handicapping things right now. And again, this could all change. The Panthers can win. You know, by the time we're done broadcasting. But I, I, I I'm going to go with the Saints. I think I think the Saints come out of the NFC. All right. Anything else? What, what, College football, maybe. <laughs> You're just wanting to transition to this. Okay. No, I, no, I, no. We should know. Uh, it's the biggest thing. It's, whether it's, it is, it, yeah. it's, it's huge. the biggest thing this week. Is yeah. The, so Alabama, Georgia, playing Monday night in Atlanta for the uh, college football playoff championship. Of course, Alabama gets there by way of uh, beating defending NCAA champ uh, Clemson, uh, and then of course the Oklahoma Georgia game. Phenomenal game. Rose Bowl goes to overtime. Baker Mayfield can't get the job done. Uh, Georgia, freshman quarterback, two great running backs playing Alabama with, uh, you know, controversial team getting into the in, into the college football playoff because they didn't even win their own division. But they're showing down now, and this is what, Alabama's third, fourth straight year? This is year. their third yeah. appearance in the title game in, in three years. It's, it's, so it's, it's awful. It's, it's, I mean, this, this, is, this is what the playoff system was supposed to allegedly fix, right? It was, it was supposed to sort of kind of equalize the playing field a little bit. You well, know, the, or, all the... or, or offer a more difficult road to prove who the best team is. Right. But, and, and arguably that is what has done, it has done. But I think if you're a non-SEC fan, like if you if you exist anywhere outside of the SEC, well, right. you're, you're, in, in, you're in terms like, the, of... like the champion UCF program. Exactly. Which, uh, which, which I, at this point, I'm, I'm fine calling them champions. I, I really don't care. <laughs> which is point. interesting. Uh, Ralph Drusso, who I think it's Ralph Drusso, Ralph Drusso, uh, he kind of runs the AP poll for the Associated Press. He sent out a, a, a tweet this week saying that he sent an email out to all the AP voters saying, just a reminder, you are not obligated to vote based on Monday night's results. Like, you can vote for a team like UCF. He didn't, he didn't explicitly say that, but he was just reminding people. And, of course, UCF and uh, Athletic Director Danny White uh, through a championship celebration Saturday at Disney World. Monday night, they're going to be throwing a championship celebration in Orlando. They're paying their coaches. Who's paying for those trips? UCF, their athletics department. They're trying- Where's that money coming from? I have no idea. All of the commuter students <laughs> from that university. So Jeremy was very thrilled that UCF did not get a Big 12 invite, of course. <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I don't harbor any lingering bitterness. Is the Big 12 all. still a conference? Um, Are there twelve teams in it? Ten. You, you ten. know, okay. I think the there are last, twelve teams in the Big Ten. The last time I checked on their website, that hasn't been updated in like ten years. <laughs> I think they were. Yeah. No, harsh I, words. So, all right, back to the championship. Georgia, yeah, game. I would say let's, uh, Georgia, Alabama. Who do you got? I'm going. I'm picking Alabama only because I, I know that that is the inevitable. That is the inevitable darkness that will. It's on the horizon right now. I can see it coming, and they're they're going to win. Um, Georgia has a chance if they pound their run game, if they really, if they use, I, I don't think, um, was it from whatever his name is? Yeah, I, from I, I, fresh, I, true freshman I think that Alabama's going to get to him, so I think that they've got to use their tight ends to open up uh, those running lanes. So I, I, I think that's their only chance. Now, that being said, um, I, I, it is of no consequence who wins tomorrow. It may as well be in SEC, any other SEC game. Yeah, so. it, it's definitely going to hurt the television ratings. Oh, uh, you know. Sure. Not a lot of people are going to watch the game, but Hunter, uh, last year you actually profiled Nick Saban 
uh, for the Houston Chronicle uh, on his time and tenure with the, uh, the Houston Oilers. And a lot of people don't know that, that he was in a, yeah. a, a, a position, a D-backs coach with the Oilers in 1988 and 1989, and he was a tyrant. He was a total you know, mean SOB, uh, and he almost was beaten up by a player. Uh, it's, I don't want to ruin the story too much. Basically, there was a player falling asleep in meetings, and Saban was dispatched to handle this matter, and it almost had him physically harmed. Very close. So uh, it's worth reading the story to see how that ends, and, and or how that began as well. Right. And yeah, I interviewed all these former Oilers back in the day who remembered him you know, being psychopathic, basically. Um, and you, know, you can see the, the genesis of, of what we see now. In fact, he's a lot more, I've been told, like even keeled now than he was then when he had more to prove. So, Well, you know, the drugs we have now for, <laughs> for that sort of problem are a lot better than they were is back that, in the is 80s. That, is that a, an auxiliary benefit of Cialis? Cialis? Uh, whew, good you tell question. me, Jeremy. You uh, I was thinking more like Depakote or uh, Valium, you know, something like that, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Look, I don't know all the fancy boner pills and what they're called now, but if those are definitely not know, boner okay, pills. Like, well, you yeah, would know. I'm saying it's so like you're like what well, you would know them. So, I, I, um, but I guess that's so you're endorsing those. They work, is what you're saying. <laughs> that's great. The other thing is, a year ago, I also wrote about. I profiled uh, Jalen Hurts a little bit. Yeah, who's yeah. the quarterback he's for a, Alabama? Obviously, grew up in the city of Houston. Yep. Yeah, with in Channel View. Um, he and his brother were college quarterbacks. Um, that's another story that actually went to the same high school as our friends from uh, the Roommates podcast. They play football together. Small world, man. Yeah. Obviously, it means we're all related. <laughs> Six degrees. Of I was just about to say, like, thank you, Kevin Bacon, for that. All right, go on. And then, no, I, I was going to say that, that that's another a link that I'll be tweeting out. I would love for everybody to check it out. Or if you want to know, you know, it's like an origin story yeah. of where this awesome quarterback came from and the, uh, the quarterback family that they started. Uh, it's a fun read. Yeah, definitely check that out. Um, we retweeted uh, Hunter's story from last year. Very on sweet. Saban, you so you can check that out at thank Weekly you. Brewcast. If I'm picking a game... I got to go with Georgia. I mean, I, th- I think that Georgia, I think their defense is phenomenal. Alabama doesn't have an offense that really does anything for me. So I think the only way Alabama wins a game is if they create enough turnovers on offense, uh, I'm sorry, on defense and, and score defensively or through special teams. I think that's the only way they do it because I think the, the running game for Georgia is just too damn good. It's, and I think they get it done. It's good, but Alabama is coming in with this as something to prove, and they've played like that in every game. Well, so does Georgia. I mean, yeah, this is pretty smart going against his former boss, right? But but you're he's pretty new to the team. All right, he's got Second plenty. Yeah. He's got plenty of time to do that against Nick Saban. I, I think that uh, I think the Dark Lord walks away with the trophy. The once Dark again. Lord, who yeah. also makes eleven million dollars a year, Rush and, Limbaugh, and, <laughs> and has a. Uh, Car dealership, right? No, well, no, he does. well, he has he has a car dealership. You can look at the players for Alabama and all the cars they drive. Um, he has a button on his desk, is as we've mentioned before, that does lock the door, like yeah. Matt Lauer style. Yeah, yeah. so true Hunter is, true has his jaw on the floor right now, but it's true. He has a button on his desk that locks the door. Conceivably, Nick Saban? To, he does the dark no. lord, the dark lord himself. Where is this yeah. proven? That's terrifying. Why ESPN. is that allowed? Yeah, yeah, that was. Why is that allowed? So we can like watch film, yeah. exactly. and not have to be disturbed, uh-huh. right? Can't he just get up? Watch. It's, it's a Fo- huge office. Watch, watch, watch football <laughs> film, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, but, exactly. But yeah. uh, anyways, speaking of coaches getting a lot of money, uh, do, you guys see, do you guys see John Gruden getting 10 years, $100 Why? million dollars to be the head coach for the, the Raiders? World we all right, we're all, we're all unanimously agree that's insane. It's insane. That's, so, okay, if he makes that much, what is Bill Belichick worth? <laughs> I mean, a guy that's actually won are multiple we, championships. Are we sure that Bill Belichick is alive? Like, we... We, yes. Are, are we sure? Yes, okay. Sure. Sorry. So sometimes I look at him and I kind of wonder. Maybe he's like uh, like a well, weekend at Bernie's. Type well, no, it, well, it, you're right. That's a great question. Uh, but well, there's a rumor. I know there's a rumor going around that he could be the next head coach of the Giants. I don't know where that's coming from, though. There's, you know, this I don't, is, I don't this is always shrouded in I don't sources. But wow, I know in concert with ESPN's story by Seth Wickersham about the dysfunction going on with the Patriots. I couldn't care less, by the way. Just saying, I don't care. Yeah. It's not a big deal to me. I know we're all reacting about it, or we're all reacting to it this week. I just, I am so over this team. I can't, even a story about them being dysfunctional, I couldn't give a crap about. I just, I'm so sick of them. I'm so tired I of I think it. most of America is there with you, actually. Like, I, I don't think most people care. I'm a, I'm a I mean, miserable Jets fan, so, you know. So, okay. I'm a little biased. 
And, and to the point about Gruden, isn't there been a rumor like once a month during, you know, at least once a month during Every football season? Every major college football team is exactly. head coach. There was a rumor about Gruden. him coming to Baylor. There's and a look, rumor he gets $100 million in the NFL. Holy cow. Crap. Like, <laughs> yeah. Cow and crap. Insane. Holy cow. <laughs> what a shot. <laughs> but, so, but you ask, how much is Belichick worth? Twice that. Yeah. Absolutely. Ten times that. 100 years. $100 million. I, I, I think, said a I hot think, take. I think I think Kraft would give them that deal. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. But all right. So speaking of other coaching moves, uh, one that kind of impacts um, the city locally. If, well, first off, NFL uh, Texans are searching for a new GM. Uh, Rick Smith out. Surprising. I don't think anyone of us thought that that would actually happen. We thought that it should happen, but actually not the way happening. it did. Obviously, right. right. Um, let's talk really quickly about U of H. Uh, we haven't really spoken a lot about U of H on this podcast, but on Saturday they announced that Kendall Bryles is leaving FAU and is now the new offensive coordinator and associate head coach for the Cougs. Also, Randy Clements is now the new offensive line uh, coach for the Cougars. And the reason why we are discussing this is because uh, the connection to Baylor and the scandal that rocked the university, the Big 12, and the nation about two years ago. Um, Are you guys surprised that U of H with Dr. Couture, especially last year after the strong statements that they made with Art Bryles and his connection potentially with that job, you guys surprised that they bring in two former Baylor coaches. Including the son of our brows. Right. Right. Kendall, yeah. right. I, you know, l- let's be very clear. FAU was definitely like a, like a, like a get sober, like a halfway house type job for Kendall Bryles after leaving Baylor. I was, I was very, I mean, he should be very, he should be sending them a thank you letter like every day for the yeah, rest Lane of his Kiffin. life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Lane Kiffin. Um, Another model citizen. Right. I think Kendall Bryles, I, I, it's not really clear how much of a connection he had to any of it. Obviously, he was there, and it's sort of a guilt by association type deal. But then on top of that, some of the reasons that are level against him, like why he shouldn't be hired, is recruiting violations, and which is sort of a silly thing. In the, in yeah, the I like how because I'm like just you, yeah, people are like, uh, oh well, you know, he's got some recruiting violations. He has some serious moral shortcomings there, and it's like, no, that's pretty, I think I think the rape allegations and covering up the rape is yeah, I'm just like in, well, uh, some that, recruiting violations. See, right, that to me would well, and and I think the reason people are going there is because there's not there's nothing tangible. Linking him to any of that, other than the fact that he was just there when it no, happened. Well, the, well, he also said the Hamil- no, I'm saying the Pepper Hamilton report, named, uh, you know, lists coaches. And they sure. Would, they, now the report would not go so far as to name them individually, right? But but it's but we're not being speculative in lumping, you know, our Browse son in with this group. No. that is oh no no, no. I, I I'm not saying that 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 it is, but it's it's curious that that they would lump like something like recruiting violations in with a reason he shouldn't be brought to okay. age. So I'm going to ask you this. You, I, I don't like the hire for U of H. I think especially after after all the rhetoric the university gave us last year, it's a really bad look. Well, it's it especially it's, it's very. I, I really hate this because right. I like Dr. Couture a lot. What she's done for the university, you know, help raising its profile, and for her to sign off on this, I don't know if that was her signing off on it, if it was Tillman Fertitta, somebody, but somebody signed off on this. I think it's a bad, bad look for the university. Look, there are ongoing. There's ongoing litigation now. Yeah, about yeah. It. well, where he, the, where, where their na- by the way, where their names could come out. His right. He was named in a civil suit, I believe. That's yeah. still being so, handled. So, so Jeremy, I'm going to ask you this. You, I don't know what your situation is on what what your take is on U of H, but you don't seem like you're a huge fan of him going to U of H. I'm not. I'm I'm, I'm indifferent to it. I'm I'm. So this, I'm, I'm going to ask you this, knowing what you know, if you had to choose a head coach for Baylor football right now. Matt Rule or Art Bryles, knowing what you know, who would you take? Hold on, wait. If you're asking me to pick a head coach for Baylor, yes. Well, I'm obviously going with Matt Rule. Why? Uh, because he's done a fantastic job. I don't. I, if I'm basing on track record alone, I think Art Bryles has the has the resume. But I'm so we're talking like if you have to have a, a guy lead the program for the next five years. Who do you want as your head coach? Oh, it's Rule or Bryles? Are, are you talking about Ken? Do you mean Kindle Bryles no, or Art Bryles? Okay, uh, it's definitely going to be Matt Rule. Okay, why? Yeah. Um, I think it's hard to answer that question outside of the context of everything. Like, I can't like if you look if you're looking at them on paper, right? I mean, Matt Rule's only claim to fame is Temple, right? And Art Bryles has significantly more accomplishments, but that are seemingly undercut by his unwillingness to tackle problems on his team. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have to say Matt Rule with without a doubt. Now, if 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 we're somehow relating this to Kendall Bryles, right? Um, I don't I don't know. Would you be okay with Kendall 
coaching the offense at Baylor. No, and the reason is because I don't think Kendall is a talented enough offensive coordinator. So I was you're not. Just, you're just making that call because of his offensive mind. It's offensive mind. You and don't yeah, care about I don't, the allegations. I don't, no, that's not. I don't care about the allegations. I don't want the guy coaching there. I mean, I, he. I don't want him coaching there because I don't think he wants to coach there, and I don't. I don't want anything browse related. At Baylor forever. Okay, good. Okay, no, I but, agree. I right, agree. and and this I hope this was some sort of like moral test for me. But, but no, Kendall Browse was, was just no, I've I, already I failed think, those several. times. I know, seriously. Um, he was not a very good offensive coordinator. If you look at if you look at Baylor's on field results, yeah, it, was all, it was all Monty. Uh, yeah, exactly. Monty it was, Art. It was right. it was Phil Montgomery and the occasional uh, call by Bryles. And yeah. so I think. It, I mean, I'm glad he's he's found work. I don't know how yeah. well this is going to work out for Houston because yeah. at the end of the we'll day, we'll find out. And I, right. I, like we've all said, it's a bad look for U of H. And um, I know our some of our U of H listeners have not been fans of Baylor and the way they've handled everything, and now they go and do the same thing by hiring no, Bryles. I mean, but that's beside the point. But you will, before we get into the interview here in just a few minutes, you watch with, them circle back, right? Exactly. <laughs> before we get into the interview here in just a few moments with uh, David Graham from the Atlantic, uh, we're also going to talk about our Bryles because our Bryles is actually speaking Tuesday at the AFCA, which is the American Football Coaches Association annual conference. He's being brought in with uh, Rachel Barbo, I believe is how you say her name. Uh, she is speaking there as well, and she's a, uh, a former sports broadcaster activist. Uh, are you guys surprised that Bryles is being brought in to speak to fellow football coaches at a high-profile convention that they have once a year? I mean, it, when I heard this, I read Especially it. since last year, right. their featured speaker was Brenda Tracy. Right. And she, speaking of Brenda Tracy, she actually sent out a tweet on Saturday criticizing U of H for hiring Kendall Bryles because she said that last year she met Major Applewhite, spoke with the U of H team, thought of him as a high character guy, and then he goes and does this. And so she said essentially that she lost respect for Major Applewhite and the U of H program. So, yeah, last year uh, Brenda Tracy spoke to all the coaches. Now Art Bryles is speaking. I, I'm kind of torn on this. I don't know. I, I, I think it'd be interesting. I, I want to see what he has to say, to be honest with you. Oh, of course. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, we, I'm, we want I'm him gonna, speaking because we're, you know, like he, I don't, I don't, and we're, I don't, no, but I don't think it's for salacious news. I, I don't, I don't so. even think it requires some detachment to say that. Like, I, I think, you know, this is, this is not like asking Ahmadinejad to come speak at the UN, right? This is Art Bryles. <laughs> not yet. You no, know, but he's, I mean, he's Art Bryles. He, he, he messed up. But then again, if you look at this, but he doesn't, but he doesn't think that. Like, this, this, uh, well, this is what's really interesting. Well, hold on. I'm interested to see what he's going right. to say. Right. I'm so, interested so to hear if he's going to show remorse. Right. Okay. So, so does he show or remorse? Or admit to culpability. Like, all right. Like most, no if, if we're talking about like the Nick Saban caliber of coach, the guy that gets to that point where they're winning at a high level, they're all narcissistic megalomaniacs. I mean, none of them, show, none of them have remorse because they can't afford to. And so uh, when, when you're asking, you're expecting all of this. Uh, you know, normal human empathy and, uh, you know, remorse from a guy like our browser. I don't think you're going to get it. I think you're going to get straight up West Texas football coach talking about <laughs> stuff that's on his mind that day. You know, I, I'll be interested to see what he has to say is like, is this a part of his like comeback campaign? Is this going to be, Oh, well, you know, he wants to coach again. Oh, he's he wants to coach very again. Clear that he wants to coach I, again. I think that the Kindle Bryles thing is a moral victory for him. I think that his son, can't, like, hired, can't Liberty university hire him or something. Uh, they have a pretty good coach themselves, but, yeah, I mean, yeah they, they yeah, they beat Baylor in like some ironic. All right. Yeah, that's what's horrible. <laughs> Anyways, well, I, mean, I, I still I still wake up having nightmares of that game. But um, yeah, yeah they I, hire Baylor's AD after getting fired and then they beat Baylor and Matt Rule's debut. Right. I, I'm, I don't think it's a problem to have him speak. Now, if he were to get up there and, you know, sermonize about how he's innocent, how this is all, a, you know, yeah, you got to cut him off at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. What did, what did you say? If he does that, this is speculative, but he's not going to do that. He's going to get up there and be our brows. And, I, and whether he talks about the scandal or not, I think it's to his detriment if he doesn't. But who knows? He could, I'm eager he to could see. tiptoe around it delicately the same way he has in previous interviews, like with Tom Rinaldi, sure. VSPN, or, or right, whatever. Right. Where you know he like he'll say he'll, he's apologized before for like what has happened, but of course then not assume responsibility for what has happened. Yeah. We'll find out Tuesday, and right. and of course, it, it I, said I wonder that, said that he had no knowledge of, of anything ever happening. How many browses browisms? You know, regardless of what you think about browse, if you watch the guy talk, he he spoke in this very distinctive way that's unique to even him. If you know people from like West Texas, he just he just kind of has did, his did own they read, dialect. Sorry, did they may read the story about him speaking this announcement on the athletic. Yeah, I read that this morning. That's actually so how I found out all yeah. the quotes in that story. 
from I can't remember but whoever whomever organizes this coaches uh, convention. Yeah, it's a uh, former head coach at Louisiana Monroe something Barry. I think Todd well, Barry maybe. He, he so he masterfully gives these all these vague statements about how and, and he also said that Bryles was booked in July. Yeah. And it's just right. now coming and out. No, and, and 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 he lumps it or maybe links it with to them bringing in Brenda Tracy last year. Brenda Tracy, if anybody doesn't know, um, not in Nebraska, is that right? She was sexually assaulted at Oregon State. Oregon State? Yeah. Okay. By me. four football players. Yeah. And, has, and since then, um, gives talks, goes around to colleges and athletic teams predominantly, and has impactful discussions about you know, how to treat women, how to comport yourself at a party, what sexual assault is, on and on. And... You know, she really is sort of the face of this, the culture, or, or, or maybe whatever, you know, the mature discussions about the culture in college athletics surrounding sexual assault. And now he, the, uh, again, Bailey, I'm sorry, what's it? Barry? Barry I th- the, the guy who's the head of this yeah. association says that they're bringing in Bryles for the same discussion. And, but he doesn't go so far as to say, you know, that Browse is responsible for what happened. He says he, he's very vague in saying he's going to talk about these issues. You know, what happened there? Though he uses the phrase, what happened there? Like, again, the lack of specificity, the lack of even saying out loud the phrase sexual assault on campus. It's, it's you know, it's, it's propagating the same kind of, you know, nothing talk that gets nothing done about the matter. Well, and, and that might be so. I, I would be interested to see, does Bryles talk about um, getting hired by the CFL? I forget which CFL team it was. And then subsequently... It was a, but it was June, um, June, June Jones. June Jones, who's one of his personal friends. Yeah. Right, right. But I, he was I, hired I, for like a half an hour. And yeah, then they let yeah. Him <laughs> so uh, his, his session is going to be called Standing Strong slash Game Management. And also to clarify, it is Todd Berry is the, uh, the director's you. name. Yeah. yeah, there's no chance Bryles is going to say anything interesting. Right, like this isn't going to be a. You say with a huge smile. No, uh, like he's not. He's not going to say anything that's going to. Is he going to say any, alleviate the situation? Is it going to be like? Uh, he's is, 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 is he going to be Trumpian? No, he will not. He's not going to. He's not going to say anything even resembling. Although I don't know. What if he channels Donald Trump when he gets up there and he's no. going to be so big? <laughs> <It's kidding. laughs> fake news. I can't. I can't. Do when I coach again, you're going to get tired of winning. You're going to say, Coach Bryles, <laughs> please lose a game. <laughs> all right, enough. Well enough, enough all right. So speaking it, of no. speaking of that, we want to make sure that uh, you follow our work, and then to do that, you can just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, so you can subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. And if you want the best information around, you can of course follow Hunter on Twitter, and that's at Hunter Atkins thirty five. If you want to slightly less cooler stuff, you can follow me at a Staten. Also, don't 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 follow me. I'm not going to tweet you. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Fiesta Bear 08 for Jeremy. Uh, but as mentioned at the uh, the top of the show, we've got a, a great interview with David Graham from the Atlantic Monthly. We're going to discuss the Trump administration, what's gone on the first uh, few weeks at the, uh, of 2018, first few days of 2018, and the, uh, the, the shouting match between Steve Bannon, or as Trump likes to call him, Sloppy Steve. Or as Jeremy likes to call him, Dad. <laughs> it's Daddy, not just Dad. <laughs> So anyways, we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the tax bill and uh, Trump's foreign policy. There's a lot of stuff going on there. So a uh, great interview. Hope you stay tuned for that. But without further ado, it's time to get to our interview with uh, David Graham. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is David Graham, a staff writer at The Atlantic who also covers the U.S. politics and global news. And uh, David, first off, thanks for joining us on the show this week. And we wanted to bring you on because, you know, 2018 has been uh, quite the start for the Trump administration, especially uh, this week with David Wolf releasing his book Fire and Fury and, and sort of the ongoing I don't know, controversy between uh, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. I, what is going on right now as we, you know, we're just a week into the, the new year? Boy, it's hard to tell. You know, we started the week with, um, or, or I guess came midweek, we had uh, Bannon making these statements that are highly critical of the president and the administration. Then we had the president coming out and blasting Bannon in the kind of terms that he tends to reserve for, like, Kim Jong-un. Uh, and then the latest is Sunday we have Bannon making a statement saying that Donald Trump Jr. is great and he regrets these statements. So it's hard to tell uh, what the state of things really is, except that everybody's in a tizzy over this book. 
And I guess, you know, from Bannon, obviously he left the Trump administration, uh, you know, middle of last year. Uh, he was a chief strategist, kind of a controversial pick, first off, you know, with coming from Breitbart, not necessarily a, a credible media outlet. Uh, it, it seemed that he was one of Trump's, you know, most loyal advocates. But it seems that since he's left, there's been a split. What is the root cause of that split between uh, Bannon and Trump? I think there are a couple things. One of them is that Bannon is a, is a, an example of a kind of type that we see in politics. The person who comes to Washington um, and thinks that he is more clever than everybody else and can outsmart them. Um, and often those sorts of people do have something, they have some sort of insight. Um, and so for a while they do seem to run circles around people. They're, you know, they have a, a new idea, people can't keep up with them. But eventually gravity tends to catch them. And I think that's one of the things that's happened with Bannon here. He thought he could outsmart the whole system. He could leak to reporters a lot while bashing reporters and sort of play both sides of Trump. And we found that eventually his ability to sort of play both sides has run out. The other thing is that Bannon and Trump were always a little bit of a marriage of convenience. You know, Trump's ideology is flexible. Bannon has a very strong one. In places they agreed and in some places they didn't. But you get the sense Bannon was always out for both his own agenda and for himself more than he was for Trump personally. And he saw Trump as a, a vessel for that ideology. And as soon as it became clear that in some ways Trump wasn't going to help out on that, Bannon seemed to um, get frustrated. Uh, and I think you see that spilling through in the sort of things he told Michael Wolf. Yeah, we started to see this with the Alabama senatorial election. I mean, Trump backed one guy and then, of course, Bannon backed the other. Uh, it started to see, I don't know, this discontent started to rise, it seemed, from that, at least from my perspective. Uh, but Bannon, uh, he's a guy that, I don't know, he seems to try to latch himself to these politicians that might be on the rise. Is I don't know. Is is that somewhat of a concern when looking at maybe the the credibility of his story in, in Wolf's book? Yeah, I think it is. You know, we Bannon has you know motives for talking about all of these things. One of the things that I think is interesting in the Wolf book is you can start to match up the things that Bannon tells him with some of the anonymous quotes that you have seen in the press for the last year. So going back to I think last February. I remember reading in the Washington Post a quote where an unnamed Trump advisor said, oh, Trump would never hire John Bolton uh, for Secretary of State because he doesn't like the mustache. And then in the book, we have Bannon saying exactly the, almost exactly the same thing about the mustache to Wolf. And so you start to see where Bannon has leaked all of these things. Um, and you know, he, he, I think he's been prolific about trying to play both sides of that and to push his own side and to make himself look like the genius behind Trump. And Trump has expressed frustration about that, you know, going back actually as far as November 2016, right after the election, worried that Bannon was getting too much credibility or too much credit, really. Um, and so, you know, you, you see that here. Bannon is looking out for Bannon and Trump is looking out for Trump. You know, I'm sort of puzzled here by this entire, you know, thing. So I'm, I'm looking at this book and I'm looking at sort of the more salacious tidbits that have come forward on Twitter and in the press. And I'm not really surprised. I mean, a lot of it is, is very similar to a lot of the media uh, narrative, M much of the narrative around Trump that's been pushed by the media. And I'm sort of wondering, what do you think the fallout is from this kind of book for Trump's base and, you know, those counties in swing states that were, you know, twice voted for Obama and then switched to Trump during this last election? I mean, I think that's a great point that it's so close to what we've seen in the media narrative. And I think for the sort of, I mean, weirdly, it's like for some some portion of the political chattering class, having this book say it all in one place seems to have made it seem more real than having it appear in, you know, every couple of days in various reports in, in some places just to see it all in one place. Um, but it isn't really that fresh. I am loath to make predictions too strong about how the Trump base will react having been wrong about it before. But, you know, my sense is that things like this don't make a whole lot of immediate difference. Uh, the president denounces it as fake. Um, the president's fault, you know, closest followers believe that and, and they're, they're bound to him for reasons besides this and, and so they dismiss it. I think it's more about the long-term slow erosion of Trump's ability to get things done and of his credibility. And, you know, you see his approval rating gradually sliding and you see the base remaining extremely loyal but shrinking slowly. And so I suspect this will just feed into that more, but it's not likely to have any kind of um, obvious turning point effect in the polling.
And with that in mind, I mean, do you think that moving forward, you know, because a, a, lot, a lot of this stuff, I think when you look at the at the nuts and bolts of it, it's kind of hard to, to verify. Even Wolf says, you know, he's, he's on record saying, I don't know if all of this is true. Do, do you think that, that something like this makes it harder for Trump to get things done in Washington heading into a midterm election that looks tough for Republicans? I think it does. I mean, for one thing, it's you know, it's just a major distraction. So this is all that anybody in politics seems to be talking about for the last week, and, and I think it will go on for at least a few more days um, until some other, you know, bombshell event happens. And every day that this is happening, it means that Congress starts to view Trump as weaker and is less likely to go along with him. It means they're distracted from doing things that he would like. It means the White House isn't focused on doing things they want. And every day that they don't get things done um, and can't sort of get a more positive news cycle going, um, it hurts Trump ahead of the elections, and as a result, it hurts the Republican Party ahead of the elections. Well, and I, I guess to that to that point, you know, that it might make harder to get things done. I mean, Trump really hasn't had positive coverage in much of anything, yet he was still able to get tax cuts done. So, you know, I, I think the election year itself would, would make anything substantive difficult. But um, do you really think that the media cycle or that the, the media coverage about this particular issue is going to factor into a, a, a Congress that's already sort of wary of Trump, but yet was still able to get something done? I mean, that's a good question. Can Congress get warier of Trump? And I, I guess maybe it would require a more uh, concrete thing for that to happen. Um, you know, taxes are an interesting example, and I think they are, um, you know, the reason taxes were doable um, was that they were something that Republican leaders agreed on with each other, uh, and they agreed on with Trump. But they, that's also a priority that any Republican president would have pushed, and you would have seen probably a fairly similar tax bill. Um, so you don't really—it doesn't require much of Trump for that bill to get through. It's what congressional leaders in both houses want already. Um, if you're talking about um, huge expenditures on a border wall or an Obamacare repeal or most recently Trump was floating um, sort of some sort of welfare reform and it's something that leaders of Congress are maybe wary of or, or unsure about you have to be able to have political capital and you have to sort of keep a focus on that and those are the places where I think these kind of distractions make it harder for Trump to get things done. And kind of on the note of the uh, the tax bill, you actually wrote in the Atlantic that the strictly partisan nature of the process hurts the bill's reception. One of the reasons voters don't expect to see any benefit, maybe they simply don't trust the Republicans. And I thought that was kind of interesting because, uh, you know, on the on the basis, it looks like uh, many Americans are going to be getting at least some reduction in their annual taxes. Of course, we've got the huge corporate tax rate being cut as well. But uh, the Democrats were essentially able to go out there knowing that they weren't going to swing this vote. And they were essentially lobbying against, uh, you know, this tax plan you know, talking about the, you know, the doom and gloom that was going to come of it. Uh, why haven't the Republicans been able to, you know, sort of change that narrative and to actually, uh, I don't know, positively highlight what they believe is uh, the right fix for the tax plan? Yeah, I think this is really fascinating. You know, I, I, you know, there are various reasons why the tax bill might be unpopular, but it's amazing that, you know, most Americans don't think they're going to get a tax cut when most Americans are going to get a tax cut of some size, at least in the beginning, although in many cases that gets smaller over the, the course of the bill. Um, you know, I think one problem is the Republicans were trying to write the bill as they went along, and so they kept having to change things and adapt things, and they were actually writing the bill. That required them to focus on that. Democrats were um, not part of the process, and depending on you know who you believe, that's because they were shut out of the process or because they removed themselves from the process. But that gave them all the time in the world to say, look at this bill. This is a benefit for millionaires. This is a benefit for corporations. It's not going to help you. And they spun it very effectively. And this is another case where the president, I think, is typically the person who sells a bill like this. And he has a, a platform, and he has um, uh, the bully pulpit in a way that Mitch McConnell doesn't and Paul Ryan doesn't and you know Orrin Hatch or um, Kevin Brady don't. But because Trump is such a divisive figure, he's not a good person to go out and convince a lot of voters that, that they're getting something. The voters who believe Trump will buy it, but there are a lot of voters who will dismiss anything he says, whether it's true or not, simply because it's coming from him. Now, a sort of pivoting from the tax plan to Trump's foreign policy, I know that a lot is made about his, uh, of course, his tweeting and whether that's a good thing or bad thing for American foreign policy. But, you know, recently he cut off aid to Pakistan and uh, a move that I think was surprising to a lot of people because that's, you know, this is something that hasn't been done before. Do you think that uh, given Trump's past moves that this is consistent with 
his philosophy on foreign policy, or do you think that this is sort of more just um, maybe erratic behavior on his part to uh, satisfy a, a component of his base? Uh, do I have to choose? I think it could be both. Um, <laughs> you know, on, on the one hand, the, the speed with which it happened, it, it seems to have come out of nowhere, and I think there are real risks to um, to suddenly cutting off aid to an essential, uh, what has been considered an essential ally in the region. Um, on the other hand, it's very consistent with what Trump has said all along. You know, if the Pakistanis are working at cross-purposes and are undermining things, why should the U.S. give them money? And on that front, he has, uh, you know, sympathetic hearing from foreign policy experts on both sides of the aisle. And there are a lot of people who think that Pakistan is an, an unreliable ally and that they are taking American money and hurting American interests. Um, and that, that this is a move that is not at all crazy, even if Trump did it with sort of Trumpian panache. Um, so that's, I mean, I think that's a really interesting case. It couldn't, it could turn out to be a, a highly popular and a really smart move, or it might not. Um, and it could come from either careful consideration or from sort of spur of the moment thinking. Again, we have uh, David Graham from The Atlantic on the Weekly Brew podcast this weekend. And David, one of the things that I vote for, there are, there are sort of three things that I look at when I vote. It's, it's the economy, it's energy, because that's the industry that I work in, and it's also foreign policy. And it seems that there have been so many different foreign policy issues or concerns in the past year over the Trump administration. Of course, we've got the ongoing, uh, you know, what seems to be, you know, measuring contest between Kim Jong-un and, and, and Donald Trump with North Korea and, and that whole fiasco over in, in Asia. But we've also got the protests going on right now in Iran. Uh, Nikki Haley has been very adamant with the UN that, uh, you know, the U.S. is going to pull back aid for countries, uh, you know, that voted against uh, the United States recognizing Jerusalem as the uh, the capital of Israel. But when, when you're looking at the Trump administration, it looks like, I don't know, there, there are so many more issues going on in the world right now that he's being a little bit more proactive and at least not necessarily solving, but, you know, being vocal about than, you know, say the Obama administration or the Bush administration. Where do you see his foreign policy going in, in 2018? And, and what do you see as the biggest issues facing the United States from a foreign policy perspective? I mean, that's an interesting question, because some of the things that Trump has talked most about, um, we've started finally to see him taking action on them. So we've seen on China, he has moderated a little bit some of his rhetoric, but remains, you know, there's still talk of tariffs. Um, We see things like the Pakistan um, aid withdrawal, which is a classic sort of fitting with his America first policy. The Jerusalem move was something that he promised for a long time. Um, So in some ways, he started to knock down these things that were his immediate promises. But we still don't have a great sense, I think, of what a systematic Trump um, foreign policy looks like. The central test, I suppose, remains North Korea. Um, and, you know, that's something that's, to a great extent, out of his control. Um, and his responses have been a little bit improvisational. They're sort of back and forth. Sometimes he takes a harder line. Sometimes he's um, talking about collaborating with China. And, and so I think that's something where you know, that will be probably the central test, but it's hard to know whether his responses there are part of a systematic answer or just, you know, anytime a president is in a crisis, they have to improvise a little bit. Um, what I'm interested to see is how he deals with uh, Europe going forward, which has been a little bit of a rocky relationship in places, and also how he deals with things like Latin America. I think those are regions where you can start to get a sense of what a president's systematic approach is to foreign policy, whereas in the crises, um, the reasons they act are sometimes specific to the crises rather than any kind of, uh, you know, long game. You know, David, in looking at sort of what I would consider is the most pressing crisis, I, I think about North Korea and, the, of course, the, the Twitter dialogue over who has the biggest nuclear button. But uh, one of the things that, that I find interesting from the media's perspective, we had Mark Bowden on this show here a few months ago to talk about North Korea. And, and essentially, the, the, the narrative I get from, from media figures is that, that North Korea is more or less a rational regime trying to, you know, prop up itself in a world that doesn't think that it deserves to be here. And seemingly, while saying that, people also criticize Trump for, uh, you know, irrational tweets and saying that he's going to set off a nuclear war. But it, it, it's like they want to have have it both ways. They want to also they want to say that Kim Jong Un is a rational dictator, but then also that Trump's tweeting could set him off. And so, um, for, from your perspective, do you think that the 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 ongoing sort of uh, PR conflict between the our, our two countries is going to devolve into anything that could resemble a, a conflict. I think the big risk there is not so much that either player is going to be totally irrational, but that one or the other player will, um, 
incorrectly read a signal from from the other one um, that Trump or Kim will be sort of saber rattling in a way that is essentially performative but not intended to to really um, force anyone's hand, and then the other person overreacts because they they misunderstood it. Um, there was a really great story by Evan Osnos in the New Yorker, I guess, a couple months ago, where he went to New, uh, to North Korea, and what he found talking to North Korean government officials was. Uh, it, it felt like they didn't know often how to interpret things that Trump would do or uh, other American presidents. You know, they would ask him to explain things that to us made sense. Oh, well, you know, that's just a question of domestic politics or that's, an, you know, that's a figure of speech or whatever. And those things just don't translate. And so even if you have two sides who are both um, essentially rational, I think there's a, a high risk of miscalculation when you have uh, this kind of tension and, and nuclear weapons involved. Yeah, it's uh, definitely going to be interesting to see what happens and transpires over the rest of 2018. Uh, if it's any indication of what the first week has been like, we're in for uh, quite a show, whether you're on the left or you're on the right. But again, uh, we have David Graham from The Atlantic on the podcast this week. And, and David, uh, you are constantly churning out content uh, for The Atlantic online. Uh, what can our listeners kind of expect from you in the upcoming weeks? What type of coverage are you going to provide? And also, what is the best way for them to connect with you online? Man, you know, I, I feel like I'm often very reactive um, and my beat is kind of to uh, cover what's going on in the news. And so, as you say, this week has been uh, pretty busy. And I keep thinking we're going to have some calm weeks, and um, we don't really get them. I guess we got a little bit in December. It was a little bit quieter. Um, as things happen, I guess I will be uh, I will be covering them. I'm uh, I'm on the Atlantic's website frequently, and I'm also on Twitter at Graham David A. All right. So uh, again, thanks to David Graham for joining us. If you want to follow his work, just again go to Twitter. Graham David A., or just, you know, pretty much subscribe to The Atlantic. We highly recommend it. Great publication. Uh, both Jeremy and myself are fans of. But, uh, David, we really appreciate you taking the time and joining us this week. Thank you for, so much for having me. Closing time. Great interview by David Graham. And uh, we appreciate David for joining us on the podcast this week for episode 120. And, uh, Jeremy, I thought it was really good conversation with him. I, th- I thought his cadence was remarkable and just, you know, kind of analyzing some of these uh, issues. And of course, David covers uh, politics and also, you know, kind of foreign affairs for the Atlantic, uh, puts out some great content. But uh, Jeremy, what did you think of the interview? Um, I, I, I loved it, actually. You know, he, he packed a lot of information into very small bits. And I think that's so valuable when you're talking to a guest about something that's so huge, like this massive, you know, media firestorm around this book released by uh by wolf whatever his name is anyways i i I thought it was fantastic what i thought was interesting about uh his analysis was that you know if if you're looking at the the narrative that the that the media has pushed about trump you know this book is essentially sort of a repeat of that sort of in a more condensed form right with like more salacious details and tidbits but um he, he seemed to think that this was going to be a kind of a turning point for the president's credibility and kind of lead to sort of a disintegration of, of his ability to, to govern effectively, which I don't know if I completely agree with, but I think uh, to have something like this center stage, um, I, I, I don't know if it's really going to, I don't know if it's going to have that kind of impact long-term on, on, on Trump, but I don't know. What did you think? I thought it was great. I thought that he was very fair in his analysis. I think he is a guy that sees both sides, um, understands logically both sides, you know, especially when we spoke to him on uh, the tax uh, legislation that just went through. I mean, I thought he made some very fair points on that. I also uh, thought that it was interesting to hear his commentary on North Korea as well, which is, you know, essentially we have both uh, Trump and Kim having a dick measuring contest uh, over the past few weeks on Twitter, enough so that Twitter has actually had to come out and say... Can you say measuring on this podcast? (laughs) Yes. Uh, He's going to bleep it out later. No, no, it'll be fine. Uh, but Twitter had to come out this week and say that, you know, they were no longer, they, were, they weren't going to censor world leaders, which is the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was a really good conversation. And it, it, it's, it's crazy to me that 2018 has already started off like this. I mean, really. Right. It, you know, it was so funny. Of the year. But, right, but before we move on to the conversation about, about Trump, I, I will say, you know, in, in talking to, to David, I find that sometimes when we, when we talk to these writers, uh, they seem to not, they don't seem to moderate their positions necessarily, but they seem so much more approachable and like more open to dialogue than if you read one of their pieces, you know. Um, I don't know if, if, you know, you know, obviously they're writing to their audience, but um, he was very good, I think, at, as you're saying, presenting a balanced point of view. But I think that the larger question about 
uh, Trump and everything is, you know, is this does this book reveal anything new about the presidency? Does it reveal anything I think that that isn't already known by Trump's critics? And I think the answer to that is definitely no. I yeah. mean, without a doubt, I mean, this is this is a narrative, you know, that Trump is this sort of incompetent buffoon in the vein of, you know, Prince Joffrey, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> don't spoil it. I just started watching Game of Thrones. I, I only won't. barely know who yeah, Prince Joffrey is. Yeah, don't spoil it. I just started watching Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but, to your detriment, Hunter. To but, your detriment. Yeah, so if you want to follow David uh, and his work, of course, you can go over to the Atlantic Monthly and just uh, you know check out theatlantic.com. Also, you can uh, follow him on Twitter at Graham David A. Uh, that's his Twitter handle. So he provides uh, some good content uh, there. But uh, overall, it's been... Uh, it's been fun getting back together with both of you, talking about sports, politics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Hunter, um, measuring contest, yeah, measuring contest. My mic yep. is is much bigger than yours. Okay, no, they're all the same. <laughs> they are all the same. Uh, but, I mean, look at those hands. <laughs> but anyways, uh, it's it's been a few weeks since we've had you on the show, Hunter, and I'm kind of curious. What do you have coming up for the Chronicle? And uh, any lots stories rocket, that you're working on? Yeah, lots of Rockets coverage. We are narrowing in on spring training, uh, which is remarkable. We Can't are 30, wait. Thirty, yeah, thirty six days away from Astros. Still doing some reporting on that, uh, but mainly Rockets. Uh, we're, we're covering the marathon on Sunday. Um, and then I, I, have, I have bigger things that are just not ready to promote yet. But as stay always, tuned. Yeah, well, as always, I have something like you know, some weird and long feature coming out about something. So definitely look forward to that. Hunter Atkins thirty five on Twitter. Thanks, Austin. Absolutely, Jeremy. What do you have coming on this week? Uh, man, I've got some. Probably going to go IKEA, get some furniture. I just moved into a new apartment, so that's congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. Um, definitely, uh, I'm, I'm moving up. Is it going to feel weird not to live with your parents? <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of funny. I was. I was the one paying your rent, so maybe they were living with me. <laughs> I just left them there. I didn't even tell them I was moving. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so the, the next guy who, who moves in there, he might be like, hey, this wasn't in my lease. So <laughs> You just put a bowl of water out and walk. Left. <laughs> <laughs> a, bowl, a, a bowl of water, some, some spinach, and, some, and a bowl of quinoa for my mother. All so. right, quinoa. Wait, last update. The Saints are up 24 to 19, so the Panthers are within a touchdown. So with Austin's great pick. You picked the Panthers, right? No, I, I picked the Saints. Saints. Uh-huh. Oh, Saints. okay. Yeah, so we might have to actually come back and to foregone re-edit some things if you're listening to this, if, depending on who that's, wins the Saints. That's, that's your game. pick to make the Super Bowl. To, to make the Super Bowl. And they might a team that could lose game. in the next eight minutes. Yeah, we'll find oh, out. Oh, Saints almost. All right, so with that being said, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the podcast. Thanks to uh, David Graham for joining us on the show this week, and we hope you enjoyed it as well. If you want to follow our work, just search Weekly Brewcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, subscribe weeklybrewcast.com all the content gets pushed straight there into your inbox so on behalf of my co-host this week jeremy paxton hunter atkins my name is austin staten we'll see you next week you've been listening to the weekly brew 